Hello and welcome to the very first episode of That 60s Recording Podcast. My name is Joe Montague and I am your host, I suppose. Um, and what better place to start than with an absolute legend of 60s music and just recording in general than with Mr. George Martin, Sir George Martin, um, legendary producer and arranger who not only worked with the Beatles, obviously, but went on to work with the likes of Mahavishnu Orchestra, Jeff Beck, Cleo Lane, Neil Sadaka, uh, America, Cheap Trick, uh, UFO, Ultravox, and a whole host of other artists. And today we'll be discussing uh, George's life and work with um, an absolute knowledge of this subject, um, Mr. Jason Kruper. Uh, who hosts a podcast called Recording the Beatles, which if you haven't heard it, I urge you to check it out. Jason knows everything there is to know about George Martin, and uh, we will discuss uh, George's work with the Beatles, um, what made him a great producer, um, and how his work on comedy before working with the Beatles had such a massive influence on what he did with them. So I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Jason Kruper. So today we're joined by um, Jason Kruper, who is uh, the creator and writer of um, a podcast called Producing the Beatles, um, which, if you haven't heard this already, uh, I don't know why you haven't, because it's un it, genuinely unbelievable. And I, I know you can hear me saying this, and I, I don't care. I'm going to flat, completely flat it, because <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. It's Every single one is a complete goldmine of information. Um, you could listen to the whole thing umpteen times and uh, still keep learning um so go and check this out i'm going to say more about this in the intro as well you'll have heard me just spouting about it um i wonder if if you could just talk through a little bit about you, the process of the podcast because it is genuinely it's such a such a well put together thoughtful educational piece of content if that if that's not too um bad of a term to call it you know could you just talk a bit about how you put it together yeah thank you i mean i i appreciate it when i started out on this it was um it was actually at the urging of my friend tim riley who um who knew that i had all this research and had gone down all these kind of crazy rabbit holes and um contributed to other books including one of his books and he said you know you should really do a podcast this this would really suit your expertise and uh, at the time I had never listened to any podcasts, so I had to go listen to a few and figure out what it was about and see if it was something I wanted to do. And um, the one that really, um, that really just I thought was a good model for the kind of thing that I would want to do, the quality and the depth, was, uh, wasn't even a music podcast. It's, um, it's called You Must Remember This, and it's by Karina Longworth, and it's about old Hollywood, basically, 30s and 40s mostly, but um, she covers a you know wide range. First, she calls it the first century of Hollywood, and that just gave me a form to think, well, you know, this is, this is how I can do this, and the, f the first couple were really easy, <laughs> and they got progressively harder <laughs> as I became more more ambitious and thought, oh, I can do all these things. Let me uh, let me try some stuff. So that that's sort of you know how it began, and and the process is it. I mean, it's very intuitive. I I wish I had I wish I had a plan 
and I and I said these are the things that I'm setting out to do. I I, I do kind of have a broad idea. Um, you know, this is about the Beatles and this is about George Martin, but the subtext that I've always kept in mind is that this is about how people collaborate. This is about when that collaboration is perfectly balanced and these people, these five people in particular, were so beautifully tuned into each other that they really sort of picked up slack for each other. So it always seemed like they had this kind of perfect synchronization, perfect balance. So, you know, that that's one part of it. One is also to teach people about music production and and how music works sort of fundamentally. What's, you know, I'm talking about a lot of musical ideas too as well as production ideas. And because I know a lot of this stuff is is not common knowledge and in a lot of cases I I, you know, when I interview people, I kind of know half the answer or I can I can get to a point and then I, I kind of hit a wall. So I, I kind of depend on the people I interview to, to you know, fill in some of this information, which I know is there, but I don't have the technical or musical knowledge to be able to express it. In, in a lot of ways, you know, in that sense, it's for me, it's, it's kind of educational and I get to learn something too while I'm doing this. Yeah. I, I think it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a trained musician and even, even the musical ideas that you you go over that I already knew about, having them explained in the way that you explain them is um, quite refreshing. Um, it, I've, I find it enjoyable to, to listen to things that, even though I know how it's already working, I still enjoy um, hearing the way that you put it together. And especially when you get musicians in to replay um, some of the, the musical ideas, it's um, definitely brings it to life. Thank you. Thank you. That's, uh, I mean, I, like I said, I didn't really have a plan. And when I set out to do this, I thought, you know, I, I really, I finished the first two episodes and I thought, oh, no one's going like, to listen to this. No one's going to care. This is too deep and too, just, just too nerdy, you know? <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm really glad to hear, you know, when people write and, 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 and say that they're enjoying the podcast, they're getting a lot out of it because, you know, it's satisfying to me, you know, i I think these ideas are interesting and that's why I want to talk about them. But I, I do always have that sort of little doubt in the back of my mind that it's like, have I gone, you know, too far down the rabbit hole? Have I really, am I going to lose people? So I, you know, I do try to keep it accessible and, and, you know, not really go into deep, deep, deep detail, but you know, there is a lot of detail to this and, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a balance best, best I can do, but I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Definitely. Uh, on the website, it says you've been studying, Presumably studying in a sort of official capacity, George Martin for a decade or so, but I guess that interest goes a lot longer than that. Yeah, I had originally just just you know out of interest in the Beatles, I got obsessed with the Revolver album about fifteen years ago, and I, I the question became for me: How did George Martin know how to do the things that he did on that album to make it sound like that? To to sort of create that production? Because as I as I looked into it, I thought he really had a lot to do with this. And you know, no one's written anything about him that talks about sort of where his ideas came from and you know how how he mastered this production process. And that sort of launched me into kind of looking into his background and and digging through a lot of records and you know just just kind of doing my own legwork, my own research. And I ended up at EMI Archives uh, 
three times, four times, <laughs> making a lot of photocopies and a lot of notes, and they must have thought I'd lost my mind. So is that Abbey Road? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, 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 EMI Archives is out in Hayes, so it's west of uh, London. But I, but I did go to Abbey Road once. Uh, my, my last trip over, they, they offered me a tour, so one of the people uh, that, that worked at the archive uh, showed me around one day. So that was a great experience. And, and at the time, he never said this explicitly, but the sort of wink-wink, nudge-nudge was that George Martin and Giles Martin were there working on the mix for love. And I think, I think they were sort of hoping, <laughs> you know, they'd take a break and I'd run into them, but it never happened. But it was, you know, it was a great, great experience being in, in uh, I, was, I got to go into studio too and hang out there for a minute, so... That was exciting. It's a special place. I, I've been once, and uh, you can, I mean, it's just such a instantly recognizable sound that room. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I was I was fortunate to play some drums in it. Oh, that's great. And as soon as you start playing, yeah, you can just hear. It's. A, I think the the sound of that room is inbuilt into our subconscious. Just, oh yeah. You know, listening to Beatles records, and you just re- you feel at home there straight away. Yeah. It's really incredible. I mean, it's I, I've been to Graceland and I've been to you know various other places and and seen these different studios mm. and 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 sort of these kind of like in in popular twentieth century music you know just this sense of like this is a kind of a sacred place but you know being being at Abbey Road was and in studio too was was just something else. You said that uh, the Revolver album was your first one. That's, I know it's so the first one you you really got into. I mean and. That's the same story for so many people. I, I wonder what it is about that album particularly that, that gets people. It's, I mean, you know, Sgt. Pepper kind of blew everybody's minds. It was the big watershed and the, and the I, you know, I, I actually had that before I had Revolver and I'd heard all these things about it and, you know, Day in the Life is just, you know, how do you recover from that? Um just, to, you know, after that, you're sort of like, well, <laughs> what else is there, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, and then, you know, I, I just listened to more albums and read more. And, and uh, I, I mean, I just think it's a fascinating record. It's so compact. It's so concise. And every song is a new idea. And, and you, you know, the, there's, what is that? I think it was uh, the gramophone. This is the review that I always think of when I think of Revolver. And the reviewer called it, uh, sounded, said that it sounded like it was smoking hot newness. And every song on there still has, sort, sort of crackles with that energy of like, we're discovering something. We can, you know, here's something we can do we didn't realize we could do. That's, that's my take on it. Because I listen to the songs and they still sound exciting. I think that's a, such a great way of putting it. I've not heard that review before. So um, I think that sums it up really nicely. Revolver and Rubber Soul seem to be the two yeah. two albums that hook people in. And then you either you go more avant-garde with some of the latest stuff or you go... I personally quite like a lot of the, the sort of... Um, bubblegum pop of the the early the early sounds yeah um it all it all it all has its all has its has its pleasures right maybe you'll talk a bit about um george martin specifically about how he came came to start working with them i know that he was contacted um by somebody about the beatles but he hadn't seemed to do many pop sessions specifically before then well the you know the story that uh that mark lewison stumbled across 
was that he was essentially ordered to sign them because uh, they wanted to get the publishing on on one of the early songs, one of the Lennon McCartney songs. And uh, so, you know, he had passed on them just like everybody else at EMI. And uh, they saw an opportunity to get some publishing money. And, you know, they said, you should do this. And the the suggestion has been that they they knew about his affair with his secretary, who became his wife a few years later, and and kind of hinted that, you know, you should do this and it would be a shame if, if you know, the scandal came out or, you know, just, just kind of kind of a, you know, we know what you're doing and, and we don't approve of it and be a good boy, George, and sign this group and take care of this. Um, and, you know, the, and that that's just, that's my interpretation. That's, you know, Mark has written that and, and, uh, in not so many words maybe, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, he, it, George Martin told this story for many years that, you know, he gave him a chance and he just had this instinct and, I think that's part of his own sort of myth-making. And, um, you know, you begin telling stories and then they be, they become true to you. They become sort of your preferred narrative. So, you know, that's that's the the nuts and bolts of how he came, he came to work with them. But the I, – I mean, I think that there is a lot of truth about the chemistry he felt with them because, you know, that – persisted that was something that was real and and was clear so i think he liked their personalities and i think he did once he got him in the studio and and once he you know heard them at that first session even though he wasn't in charge of that session at the beginning i think he responded to that and he you know he he was running a little label that didn't you know kind of flew under the radar and he did these comedy records which you know we can talk about more because i think that's a huge part of the story but but he was kind of his own little fiefdom within EMI and got to do what he wanted. And, you know, if he felt like he could have fun with this band, then he would do it. You know, he'd, he'd certainly done that plenty of times before with other artists. So, you know, it figures that he would just say, oh, you know, these guys are fun. Maybe we'll get some records out of them. But, you know, I like their company. <laughs> what what about the comedy records do you think was, was there? I mean, I can I can almost piece together what you're what you're uh, alluding to in my head but right this this is uh something i'm going to get into in a later episode of the podcast maybe a couple of episodes because it's yeah. it's such a big subject you know he he started out running when he when he was put in charge of parlophone he sort of had to figure out how to make it work and make money so he was he was producing everything he was producing classical music he was producing scottish dance records he was producing pop records and crooners and you know any anything he did he did skiffle records you know anything that he could do to try to get a hit and then he stumbled across you know the these these different artists who he began to have success with and one of them was peter sellers and flanders and swan with the at the drop of a hat album proved to be very successful and then he he sort of he seemed to have realized that this was a niche and he could do something that nobody else was doing so he began recording more of this material and it and it got popular it was never really hugely popular but it was enough for him to kind of stake a claim for himself in the pop marketplace and and distinguish himself and all told he recorded it's something like 14 or 15 comedy albums 
from, I think, about 1957 to 1962 or 60, 64, maybe. And some of those are just transcriptions of live stage shows. But some of those are really heavily produced records. And there, there are three or four of them that, that really stand out where you, you see that here's a guy who's really interested in using the studio in unusual ways. And it, it's not like pop records at all. It's really more like radio productions, what he's doing. But the reason this is important for the Beatles is that he's experimenting all the time with these records. And he, sa- he says later that um, with the comedy records, they were, they were really challenging because he had to come up with a new idea or a new sound or new effects or new something for every record. And, you know, he wanted, he, he thought having a pop artist like Cliff Richard would be easy. He'd just find him material and they'd record it and he'd have number one hits and it'd be great. But once he found the Beatles and he realized that they were responding to his production ideas, they ultimately became just like the comedy records in the sense that they needed a new idea for every record. They needed a new idea for every every song. So it really it really sort of set the stage for that kind of dynamic with them. That's it's so interesting. I I honestly hadn't even given it a second's thought before. It's really a kind of kind of a hole in the uh, um, in the research about them because it's you know he had this twelve years experience running this little label and and he ran it himself from um, what is it nineteen fifty four fifty five so he was doing everything and yeah I, I think I think you know I like I said I want to talk more about this in detail in the in the podcast and and play examples but. Yeah, once I once I started listening to these records, I thought, oh, this is where it all comes from. This is this is the sort of the crucible where he's, you know, he's learning his skills. And one person who's very important to this was uh, Stuart Eltham, who was recording engineer and who had trained Norman Smith and and was still active uh, around the time of the Beatles and worked on some of their sessions. But he and George Martin worked very closely on these some of these comedy records. So I think his expertise in the studio and understanding just the technical aspect of what could be done and what needed to be done in order to uh, to pull off the things George wanted had a had a big impact on George Martin's understanding of of how the studio worked. It's fascinating how many of these things, uh, sort of events or um, series of events, sort of came together in what you know, in, in, in creating the Beatles career. And it's just another one, like you say, that's overlooked that can, you know, is, is clearly overlooked. Um, but is a, another, another, um, serendipitous sort of facet that was like, Oh, oh, well, of course George was prepared to do these things because of this. And it's, uh, it's amazing how many of those things came together to create the career of the Beatles. Right. And I mean, some of it is that they were sponges, you know, they, they responded to, you know, the world around them. I think the difference with George Martin and what he was doing was that he was a really receptive audience to them in a way that nobody had really been receptive before. So he was, they were bringing him songs and and they were recording and he was giving them sort of feedback and, and encouragement and saying, you know, try this, try this, or speed up, please, please me, you know, giving a different arrangement. So he wasn't shutting them down. He was, he was acting like a good teacher 
and, and encouraging them. And, you know, they responded to that. And Paul and yeah. John in particular just ran with it. Paul, you know, I think Paul really kind of wanted to be George Martin in some ways because he, he, he took a lot of those production ideas and expanded upon them. And Chris Thomas told me uh, recently that he, he really learned more about production from watching what Paul McCartney was doing during the White Album sessions, just sort of his, his process for, uh, for creating a recording. One thing that sprung to mind while you were talking about the, the comedy side of things is how, I know how, um, what's the right word? prescriptive um emi or abbey road was at the time you know everything was white coats and brown coats and doing things in a very particular way and i suppose comedy doesn't always fit into that mold it's supposed to escape that kind of stuff so he will have been doing silly things to get silly noises and uh, using the studio in a way that wasn't what they were doing for the classical sessions um, and prob- maybe I'm speculating, but maybe given being given freedom that he might not have had if he was solely doing classical sessions. Well, he, you know, like I said, he ran Parlophone himself, so he had a certain amount of freedom to record whatever he wanted and do it however he wanted to do it. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing is that the uh, the four track machines were typically used for you know to be able to control the the mix. So it was you know you you record you know, whatever your layout would be, maybe for a classical session or a pop session. But the, the emphasis was was more, I think, on... My, my impression is it was really more for classical to be able to balance the, uh, the recordings. But what he did is he took four track, and he would request it. You, I mean, you see it in the, the forms from, that I saw at EMI where he's, he said, you know, four track recorder, please. He knew he was going to need this to to accomplish what he did, so he was taking the technology and using it in ways that they weren't really anticipating. They had bought these to be able to balance instruments better in the mix, not to not to do some sort of wild, crazy production like he was doing. One thing I was was wanting to ask you about is his training, his classical training, and an interest in classical music. I'm I'm assuming that he had input into the vocal harmonies that they were putting together, which was all influenced by classical music. And then, as the arrangements got um, more ambitious, the his again his classical training is sort of coming to the forefront, and it brought perhaps a bit of a a maturity or encouraged a bit of a maturity in in what Paul and John were writing. Uh, well, as as far as the vocal harmonies, that was that was really them. Uh, the only time he, now he may have done this a few different times later on, but the the only time he he ever specifically spoke about working with them on vocal melodies, uh, vocal harmonies, sorry, was working with them on because, and he said that he went to the piano and told them the notes to sing for those harmonies. So, you know the the uh, but the. the 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 main thing is that they had this John and Paul had this this sort of intuitive sense of how to sing with each other. And if you listen to the uh, you you may have the bootleg where you can hear all the uh, the takes of I saw her standing there, and they're changing little subtle things every performance, every every take, and that's them. That's not him telling them what to do. And George had that too. I mean, I, it, George really gets a lot of short shrift, and and I think he's a he's an important part musically. Like he had a great sense of melody, and he had a great 
great sense of chord structure. And, you know, the, the example, one of the big examples early on is She Loves You, and that's his idea to do that sixth chord on the, uh, the vocals at the end, which George Martin thought was kind of corny and old-fashioned. So that's them, you know. They're, they, they really had a great sense of, of vocal harmony. And again, you know, that's another point that's overlooked. I, I would love for somebody to do a, a podcast or, or a paper or some, some documentary about uh, Beatles' vocal harmonies because I think it's just, they, they were great harmony singers. Yeah, the un- unbelievable harmony singers. Um, you know, I, I play in a show, uh, we do, I mean, lots of Beatles shows do This Boy and that's just the highlight of the show for me even though as a drummer I don't play <laughs> don't play a huge amount in it but it's you know it's, it's such a special song and their harmonies were were one of the main main factors of of why of why they're such an attractive band to listen yeah I agree and I think uh, one of the things that's missing from so, so many Beatle covers over the years is is people will sing those songs solo for solo voice and and they don't take into account the harmonies which to me is is a huge part of their appeal, just their musical appeal. Uh, the, there's a quote I took from one of the episodes of the podcast. It might have been the second one, um, where you you mentioned that he was number one for 38 of the 52 weeks of that year. I'm not sure how many of those weeks were with Beatles songs or <laughs> or with other acts. I'd have to check what the what the statistics are for how many were Beatles songs, but um, <laughs> I mean quite a few. Yeah, just seems completely i mean i mean you just have to look at the list of of um artists he's produced and songs and albums he's produced and it's there's there's definitely something with george i mean the beatles obviously were incredibly special in their own right but i wonder if you have any idea of what what his what it is about him as a as a an individual that means he can pull the best out of the musicians around him. Yeah, I mean, he had a special relationship with them, which is, you know, like nothing else in the history of popular music. Uh, I think it's it's really unique. So that, you know, that chemistry that the five of them had is, it's, you know, it's clearly something was there. He was a talented person. If you listen to the, you know, his recordings uh, before the Beatles, he's clearly somebody who's thinking about things and and has an unusual perspective on things. Um, you know, not a lot of those recordings were hits, and and some you know some are interesting, but they're not necessarily good from an objective point of view. And you know, the Mersey stuff in the in '63, which is why he, you know, he had all those number one hits that year, was you know because of the Beatles, because of Brian Epstein, because he had these opportunities and he was, he was ahead of the curve on this. He, he just had this handed to him and happened to produce these people. And he, you know, he did a very good job with the artists that he had. And he, you know, he had the, he had the foresight to be able to look at these, these different people like Jerry and the Pacemakers. And even though he, you know, he didn't, he didn't think that Billy J. Kramer had a great voice. He still, he still got something out of him. He had the sense that, you know, he could make this work. So, you know, he was a problem solver. And I think he was, if you if you look at the other producers who were active at the time, they were mostly a lot older and kind of came from that, that orchestral background, that kind of, you know, band experience. And they had a very specific way of, of sort of looking at the music business, the record business. And George Martin didn't really have that. He he had this kind of uh, 
he was always the the kind of junior member of EMI, so he was playing catch up, uh, you know, the whole time he was there, and I th- I think that imprinted something on him, uh, the sense that you know he had to work harder, he had to try different things, he had to be more innovative, he had to kind of make a space for himself, where you know these these established people like. Norman Newell and Nori Paramore just sort of, you know, breezed in and breezed out and did their thing. And, you know, they sort of, they respected him as a, as a colleague, but, you know, I also think they, they probably kind of looked askance at him and said like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know. So I, you know, I think that's a part of his personality. He sort of, he had to, um, he had to compete with that and he had to find unusual ways of, of doing it. So, uh, you know, and I think just something about him as a person, he had a great sense of precision and skill and and uh, kind of a workshop mentality. You know, he'd wanted to he'd wanted to design aircraft early on. And I you know, I think there's there's some element of, you know, there's a designer, there's somebody who wants to build things. And his you know, his father was a carpenter, so I think he saw a lot of that very, you know, very explicitly. Here's somebody yeah. building things. Physically, so you know, can't say for certain that that's what it is, but that sort of all makes sense to me. That that's kind of a line I can trace. Yeah, that definitely does seem to make sense. It makes sense in, in my mind as well. Hearing you saying it, he has to make a make space for himself, uh, as as you put it. And then later, the way you put it in the podcast episode was made himself available for the recording of "Let It Be," and then and sort of we're talking about the you know the very late point of the Beatles career he didn't feel the need to to make space for himself there he almost it's almost like the um the the inmates running the asylum kind of thing you know he his his, if he was a a musically a father figure he his musical children if you it's such a crude analogy (laughs) but you know they'd grown up and taken over and he he could stand back and and let them do their thing and not feel the need to to um to press anything on them right i mean he he um with the beatles in particular he knew when to step back and he i mean he knew he was dealing with incredible talents and incredible egos but you know he recognized that they had surpassed him in a lot of ways they had taken what he had he taught them and and kind of run with it and made it into things that he wouldn't have imagined on his own and that's the you know the great thing about collaboration is that you present ideas to each other and something else new will come out of it because everybody has a different perspective. Yeah, so I you know I think I think he did realize that especially during the get back sessions that you know things were out of control and there was really no way for him to step up and and say look chaps we have to you know we have to get it together boys. That just wasn't going to happen. You know, it, he could have done that in 1963 because he was in charge. But by 1969, you know, they they conquered the world and, you know, they had their own ideas. And, and at this point, it's sort of like, well, we'll we'll follow along and see what happens. And there I mean, there are so many reasons why that, you know, that project was the way it was. That's probably, you know, too big of a, a topic to get into. But <laughs> Yeah, fortunately, they did get it back together for Abbey Road. I've just finished reading um, the Jeff Emmerich book, which I know there's a lot of opinions about this book, um, but I try, try to take things on on face value. Um, George doesn't seem to get much of a mention in Jeff's book, and he Jeff seems to take a lot of credit 
this is in my opinion for for a lot of the um innovation in the studio through the the albums that he worked on with them on and i wonder whether george had more influence than than that book would make have us believe it makes sense to me that that george would just progress to to doing some of the things that they did with you know the peppers album or um, revolver and that kind of stuff and it, i mean it, it's a complicated topic um i have tremendous respect for what jeff emmerich did and i'm sorry i didn't get to meet him at the white album conference and uh in 2018 because he had died just before he was supposed to be a guest but i i think you know some of that book is a corrective uh, maybe overcorrecting, saying, you know, look, the engineers did a lot on these records. This was important. And and if uh, some people may know about the recording the Beatles book, which I think they talked to every engineer who was still alive and and just did incredible, incredible work to to try to get this stuff down and and give those guys credit because, you know, the the technical team really had a lot to do with the sound of those records. Just the, you know, just sort of like sounds going through microphones and being processed and you know Jeff Emmerich again was he was he was young when he when he began engineering for them and and he, he had ideas and and George Martin saw that he had ideas and was not afraid to uh, you know try different things try new things so there there's this kind of symbiotic relationship with with George Martin with Jeff Emmerich with the Beatles and he, you know Jeff Emmerich and uh, Norman Smith both, uh, and I think Jeff Emmerich picked up a lot of things from Norman Smith because Norman Smith was older and he'd been there longer and he had more experience and he sort of established this baseline for how they would work. You know, those, 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 all, those, all those people were working together and we see George Martin, we see the Beatles and that's sort of the face of it, but there was a lot going on behind the scenes that, you know, is maybe too complex and too technical for kind of the average reader or average listener to grasp. But I think it's just as important. So while, you know, while there may be uh, instances in his book where he overstates things or he has errors and, you know, what, whatever those the sort of details that, uh, that we can get lost in, I think the bigger picture is, is that he, he, you know, helped them change all sounds. That was that was the idea on Revolver, and from then it it sort of developed. And you know, he worked with them, and then he didn't work with them, and he worked with them again. But I I think he probably I I can't speak for him. Obviously, my impression is that he he thought he deserved some credit for what he had done, and to you know maybe clarify, and you know maybe maybe a more even-handed biographer would would step in and and say, you know, here's what Jeff Emmerich did, here's what George Martin did. Let's give people credit for what they actually did and uh and make it clear, but often, you know, that's that's difficult to do. I don't know if that really answers your question. It's kind of <laughs> it's a it's like I said, it's very complicated. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I I I think that's a really balanced point of view on it, um which is why I wanted to ask you the question, really, because it I think um I think it's really like you say it's easy to get lost in in some of the information in that book, but if you you think of it as a redressing the balance a little bit, that's a really nice way of putting it because I don't think they everybody who 
from from what I can tell, everybody who was involved in in the Beatles sort of sphere, um, bar a, maybe one or two, ha- was a fairly level headed, um, on point person. Um, you know, they'd come to work with them just by happenstance because they were working at EMI. Um, they hadn't, you know, they just were promoted to the role and they got the job at EMI for a reason and they all just seemed like really really great people so I can't imagine for a second that anyone would be um trying to to do to sort of um get more credit for something than than they deserve right and like I said you know I think the engineers have not been given the credit they deserve over the years you know because engineers is kind of a backroom thing produce being a producer was a backroom thing until george martin and and even phil specter you know people like that sort of brought it to the forefront in the in the 60s and and uh, the the spotlight began being directed at them and you know even even with that even with you know more than 50 years of that kind of a conversation i think it's still kind of an elusive subject like what do producers do so you know it it kind of gets lost where you know people say oh well the producer runs everything he runs the board and he does this and he does that and it's it's really it's different from person to person and with engineers it's you know it's often different too some engineers step in and and can do more production work just because of their background because of their skill set so I'm not sure where I was going there, but <laughs> that's sort of, I guess. Well, one of the things that I I find interesting about Abbey Road is how, I, you know, I, I'm a quite, I like, I, I personally, as, a, as an individual, like structured things. And I, I really enjoy the, the how um, Abbey Road was structured as a, as a sort of um, an entity. And, and, you know, you had the second engineer running, um, running the tape and then you had the engineer doing this and the producer doing that. And then you, you graduated through the roles. Um, so I think, and it was interesting to see how, as you say, it, I think in the sixties, it, um, as, as the sixties progressed, those roles became a little bit blurred, um, to the point where we're at now, where, you know, often an artist is the producer, the engineer and the artist all mixed up together and no situation, no two situations are the, are the same ever. Right. And I mean, I, I, like I said, I think that, you know, by the 60s, that began to all that the, the structure began to change and in, in how production worked. So and, that you know, that was because of George Martin and because he he and the Beatles sort of upset what the standard uh, procedure was. Uh, one of the main reasons why I mean, me, why I'm personally really into why the 60s fascinates me so much um, is, is what is for that reason. Um, I'm really conscious of taking up too much more of your time. I've got a couple of couple of uh, easy questions. <laughs> no, go, go for off. it. Go for it. I'm I'm good. Yeah. Is a uh, is um is Revolver still your favorite album? Um, I mean, I don't know that Revolver has ever been my favorite album. I just got obsessed with it because I realized that was kind of ground zero for everything. I mean, I I love so many things on the White Album. I like the idea of the White Album. It's just. To think that these these very different people had all these different interests and they're bringing them to bear within this one group and and it it just seems like a glorious mess, you know. I said I've said before that uh, I think the White Album is Revolver through the Looking Glass. It's um, it's it's just everything that was on that record and and blown up and expanded and and turned up to 11 and all of the ideas just kind of thrown at the wall and and really everything they learned 
since Revolver, both as people and as musicians, artists. I think I think you know all all those things are still there, but it's a much richer, much more complex tapestry that they've created. But you know, then there's some days where I just want to listen to side two of Abbey Road, and you know, it's it's immensely satisfying. It's just such a you know the the medley uh, the the end of the medley with uh, uh, you know Golden Slumbers and Carry That Weight in the end is just it's it's transcendent. So you know it 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 changes you know and sometimes I just want to hear this boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I I'm with you. I don't think I have a favorite. I think it just they they all depends what mood you're in. Um, so what would you? I mean, I, I, I'll admit, I'm sure it's fairly obvious through this conversation. I, I haven't read um, anything about George Martin yet. What would you recommend as, as a first reading port of call? Uh, well, Kenneth, Kenneth Womack, who's a friend of mine and who is, uh, we're co-authoring a book together right now, um, wrote a two-volume two volume biography of uh, George Martin, which is outstanding, you know, hit, hits all the... Uh, the marks where it needs to, and he and he has some really great background research. Really, just you know, as I as I read it, I just kept nodding, going like, "He got it right. He got it right." So it's you know, it's it's you know, some books some books I read, and I just think, "Oh, that's right. And that's not right." <laughs> uh, and and uh, you know, with him, I I you know, he he really did the legwork, and he and he talked to a lot of the right people he needed to talk to, and. Um, got the story right, so I highly recommend those books. And you know, George wrote his, George wrote his autobiography, "All You Need Is Ears," which I think, if you want to get an idea of his own personality and his charm, because he was a very charming person, and he had a he had a goofy sense of humor. He loved puns. I, you know, I think you could read that. Don't look for details. Don't look for you know technical knowledge because he really he really doesn't go into it there and he was he was not a a technical studio producer he was more of a creative studio producer so you know his classical background obviously he has the technique but you know he his his ideas about production in that book are are probably what i would recommend looking for but as far as an overall you know biography of him uh can't beat Ken Womack's books. So that's the uh, the life of the Beatles uh, producer George Martin. Yes, that's a that's the title of the book. I think I've I've pulled it up on the website here. Yeah. Um, what's the? Uh, are you allowed to say what your new book is? Yes. Um, or is it a secret until it's finished? No. <laughs> <laughs> if it is a secret, it's the worst kept secret because I keep talking to everybody about it. Um, uh, it's it is it is uh, the making of all things must pass and how that gave birth to to Layla the Layla album, so we're sort of covering mm. George and um, and Eric Clapton in 1970 and all the sort of uh, interconnections between the two of them and yeah it's uh, it's it's such a fascinating story and there's so much about these sessions that hasn't been covered that. Uh, I'm, you know, every week I'm just sort of stumbling across one thing or another and uh, interviewing people and learning something new and getting great little stories that uh, nobody's ever told before. So, yeah, that's that's uh, what we're working on. And it's, it's like I said, it's really exciting. Um, he, he actually had to talk me into it because I was a little skeptical. And uh, then I started, I just started looking at uh, 
at the possibilities. And I thought, oh, okay, this could be good. This could be a really interesting book. So yeah, I mean, I I I'm curious to read it already. I mean, all things must pass. I. I was late to the party with that. I mean, I I just focused my listening on just Beatles things, and then through conversations with friends of mine, started to delve into to other things. And I was I was uh, lent a copy of All Things Must Pass by a friend of mine, and it's one of those albums for me where, um, you know, sure we've all had these experiences where you listen to it and it feels like it feels comfortable to listen to even on the first go round, and uh, and I don't know anything about. George's relationship with Clapton, really. So that sounds like a really interesting book. Yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, I mean, the making of all things must pass itself is this epic, epic thing. And I mean, I agree with you. When I first heard it, and I was again, I was late to the party. I didn't. I was born in 1969, and my parents weren't necessarily big fans of rock music at the time uh, in the 70s. So I I came across it in the in the 80s. When you know, as a teenager, and I started just sort of gobbling up all music I could uh, get my hands on, and a friend of mine made me a tape of that, and I remember hearing the title song and hearing that pedal steel, that kind of ghostly pedal steel at the beginning, and it just it just rang the most familiar bell. And I played it for my mother, and I said, "Do you know this song? Did you listen to this song when I was when I was little? Because I swear I know this. This just sounds." Like this is in my DNA or something. It was the strangest thing. <laughs> it's a, it's one of the special things about music. I love it, absolutely love it. Yeah, um, it's been so great to speak to you. Um, you're such a wealth of information on this, um, on all of this topic, and I, uh, I really look forward to more, more of your podcast episodes, and I really look forward to this book that's coming. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yeah. When you finished it and it's out, I'll have to read it and uh, and have you back on and chat again. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd love to talk about it. Um, I mean, I I like I said, I love the album, and any excuse to talk about it, uh, I will. And then I can tell you a lot more about what I learned in the writing, what Ken and I both learned, because we're you know obviously both sort of stumbling across things and going, oh, I didn't know that. So um, yeah, be happy to. Well, yeah. Thanks again for uh, for speaking to me. I do really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. After we finished recording, uh, Jason and I were chatting about the next episode of his podcast, Producing the Beatles, and it turns out to be a, a rather special episode. So uh, have a listen to him talking about it here. It's the season one finale, and it's covering the the cellos and trumpet score for Strawberry Fields Forever. Uh, so I, I went into a recording studio a while back with uh, seven musicians, and we re-recorded the score completely, the whole thing. And we used the Beatles percussion track as as the backing. So they followed that to keep the tempo and to keep the feel as close as possible to the record. And I'm I'm happy to say I think it's pretty close. A friend of mine in a in a different studio who's a big Beatles fan did a mix for me. And it's it's incredible it was incredible to be in the room while people were playing this music and and I, I can't conduct but I was having to conduct <laughs> the trumpet players <laughs> because uh, the uh, the tempo is difficult to follow that that drum track doesn't really uh, George Martin had said himself it doesn't stick to a like a, a quartz synchronization so it varies a little bit um, but they oh I, I know that from my experience trying to um, trying to learn that song um, 
it it does it messes with you a little bit. Yeah, and it's you know I talk about how that that drum track was created and and sort of you know what what all went into it and. I was able to pull an isolation out of the uh, out of a bootleg mix so that we could use that to to follow because it had none none of this has been officially released and the reason I wanted to do I wanted to re-record the score is because it wasn't available and for people to be able to listen to and I and I had the engineer close mic everything so I could pull out the trumpets and just listen to the cellos or I could listen to one cello or I could listen to one trumpet um, if I wanted to, just to just to be able to to explain things uh, in the episode, so that I could I could point to something specific and then play it. And I thought that recording was too interesting uh, just to leave for the podcast. So, for a small fee, you'll be able to download it from Apple Music. And if you want Lossless, because I like Lossless, you can download it from uh, Bandcamp as well. And and so you'll be able to hear the complete score in excellent sound and. You'll be able to hear all sorts of details you couldn't hear before. So that that should be up in the next week or so. And I can confirm that that is out now. It's on Bandcamp. Uh, just go and search Producing the Beatles. I have, I've bought it. It's incredible. Um, go and check out Jason's podcast. It's unbelievable. Um, and I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, please like, share, um, rate and review this podcast um, if you enjoyed it. Uh, next time we're going to be chatting to... Um, None other than Mr. Ken Scott, uh, which is an incredible conversation to have had. I am privileged to have spoken to him. He'll be out in two weeks' time. Uh, I'd like to thank my good friend Joe Kane for the theme music and uh, another good friend of mine, David Henshaw, for creating all the artwork for this podcast. You can find me at www.allyouneedisdrums.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram at allyouneedisdrums. Uh, and facebook forward slash all you need is drums uh, all the information and show notes for this podcast will be at all you need is drums.com forward slash uh, that 60s recording podcast um so there i hope you enjoyed it and we'll see you next time goodbye <laughs>